Hello, and welcome to the Talking Precision Medicine podcast. In this series, we sit down with experts on the application of AI and big data analytics in the drug discovery space. Our guests are innovators, business decision makers, and thought leaders at the intersection of data and therapeutics. We discuss the promise, practice, challenges, and myths of AI in precision medicine. This show is brought to you by Genialis, and Rafael, our CEO, is your host. Genialis is focused on data integration and predictive modeling of disease biology to help accelerate the discovery and de-risk development of novel therapeutics. Today we speak with Oliver Elemento. Oliver is the director of the Englander Institute for Precision Medicine, as well as associate director of the Institute for Computational Biomedicine, both at Weill Cornell Medicine. He is also co-founder of One Tree Biotech. Oliver is a practitioner par excellence in applying advanced analytics to large genomic and patient datasets. Our conversation covered a lot of ground, including curated knowledge bases, patient consent, breakthroughs in preclinical models, and even AR, VR. Let's get right into it. So I'm here today with Dr. Olivier Elemento. Uh, Olivier is the director of the Carroll and Israel Englander Institute for Precision Medicine. He's associate director of the Institute for Computational Medicine. These are both at Wheel Cornell Medicine in New York. And he's a co-founder of a new and exciting startup, One Three Biotech. So Olivier, that's that's a ton of stuff going on. Let, let's start at the top. Tell us more about the various roles you play, running your lab, directing the institute, starting a company. Yeah, so um, as, as you mentioned, um, I do a few things here at Cornell. So the, the, what sort of occupies most of my time is running the Institute for Precision Medicine. Uh, so that's an institute that has two missions. One is a clinical mission, which is to use um, cutting-edge genomic analysis to basically you know, um, identify how we can help patients using genomics, how we can sequence the DNA of you know, tumors, the germline DNA of patients you know, for non-cancer patients, and use that information uh, in a way to optimize how we uh, treat patients, how we care for patients, uh, how we diagnose disease, you know, and so on. Um, and so this is something we've been doing for several years now. We um, have some really cutting edge assays, you know, in that space. Uh, we're running whole exome sequencing of tumors, uh, sort of tumor normal sequencing, sequencing 22,000 genes for every tumor that we sequence. And it gives us a very detailed, you know, view of the mutational profile of, of tumors. And that gives us a lot of options, gives, gives our physicians a lot of options in terms of what treatment to use. We're focusing on advanced cancer patients, basically patients who tumors evolve to the point where it's, you know, resistant to chemotherapy. You know, it's often, you know, metastatic disease, multiple locations. You know, surgery is not an option anymore. Radiation is not an option. So we're looking for targeted therapy options for those, for those patients. We're looking for, you know, and track fusions, you know, which have recently become actionable, MSI high, you know, too high tumor mutation burden type of type of you know situations, and looking also to use, uh, you know, sort of basically off-label, you know, sort of drugs as much as possible. You know, if we can find mutations that we know are important in other tumors, you know, maybe not, you know, with an FDA-approved drug in that particular tumor type, but there's basically a drug that's approved in a different tumor type where those mutations are found, then potentially we can give those drugs to patients, you know, really, so last resort type of options. We put patients on clinical trials, you know, quite a bit as well, uh, you know, as, as a result of this genomic analysis. So, you know, the primary goal is a very clinical goal, uh, and that's, you know, it's working really well. I mean, the strength of the program is that as we generate a lot of information about patients, that we sequence, you know, you know, thousands and thousands of cases now, uh, we're actually starting to get a lot of information. We 
end, you have a, an extensive database of uh, genomic profiles. And these are patients really here at Cornell. So, you know, they've consented for us to also use not only the genomic you know, data for research, but also the clinical data. And so we're starting to make very compelling, interesting, novel associations between genotypes and phenotypes. Uh, and that, you know, is giving rise to some interesting associations. Uh, and in some cases, it's starting to give rise to potential, you know, drug targets. You know, we have industry alliances also as well that allow us to capitalize on these discoveries, you know, and basically sort of get to the next step, which is to try to come up with drug candidates, uh, basically based on the targets that come out of the, uh, the efforts. That makes a lot of sense. Can you talk a little bit more about the, the clinical side? So Cornell has its own its own clinical facilities there. Are you working with some of the bigger New York hospitals? How does that yeah, work? Yeah, so we, we are part of a sort of hospital, you know, sort of system here. It's it's called New York Presbyterian Hospital. It's, you know, one of the largest hospitals in the U.S. Uh, so we're basically a medical school that's connected to a hospital, and we work together very closely with the hospital and many things. Uh, so we run our own clinical lab. So we have a clear lab that, you know, where we uh, run the assay you know, that, that we develop. Uh, we have to go through New York State approval for these assays. What that means essentially is that we have to credential, you know, these genomic assays basically, you know, so demonstrate that these assays, you know, produce reliable information, reproducible information. We have to uh, report the results, you know, back into the EHR, which is something that's also very unique to what we do. We have a full integration between genomic analysis and the electronic health record. Physicians order testing in EPIC, which is the clinical system that we use. Uh, and the results of a genomic analysis go back into EPIC. So that's where they consume the information. Uh, that's where essentially they can find the genomic reports. Um, but in addition to this, I mean, the, the, the strength about, you know, using the EHR is that we can essentially connect in a very sort of, you know, easy way, clinical data and genomic data, because it's already in the EHR. And so we use ITB2 as an example, as a way to do queries that combine genomic information, genomic mutations, and clinical data, demographics, and diagnosis, you know, lab results, and so on. Uh, so the paradigm is very powerful. And, you know, we are actually on one of a few uh, institutions in the U.S. actually that have enabled this integration, this very deep integration between genomic analysis and the EHR. Very proud of it. And, and, and it's really the way to go. It's, it enables, you know, sort of uh, our physicians to consume the information in much the same way that they consume every other type of results that they get, you know, from the patients uh, basically through the EHR. And so who's actually performing the secondary and then tertiary genomics analysis? Is that happening in your lab or in a group of labs? Um, how is the bioinformatics and then, of course, the more advanced analytics done? Yeah, so I mean, we have a, it's, you know, it's an entire workflows. It's, you know, a set of tools that, you know, we use. We've actually, by the, at this stage, automated the whole process, pretty much the whole process of, you know, analysis of, you know, results, interpretation of mutations. Uh, we're using a, a resource that we created here at Cornell. It's called the Precision Medicine Knowledge Base. It's a database of, you know, cancer mutations, but focusing on actionable cancer mutations, basically mutations that are important when it comes to treatment, when it comes to diagnosis or prognosis, you know, and so on. Uh, so we maintain our own database, uh, which is, you know, very sort of focused on the kind of mutations, you know, the patient profiles that we see here, uh, but it is also made available to the public. You know, this is a resource that we're trying to make available to everyone on the planet, basically, and it's used actually across the board, you know, and just, you know, many, by many, many 
people across the planet. And so that actually is very helpful. Essentially, more or less at this stage, is still, you know, sort of looking up, you know, sort of information. So every time we sequence the genome, we get a list of mutations, point mutations in there, scopy number alterations, you know, translocations if we do RNA-seq. Uh, and we look up all these mutations in our database. Uh, and when we see a match, we basically have an interpretation, a clinical grade interpretation that's connected to the uh, mutation that's also tumor type specific. And that we report on the, on the report. Our pathologists, you know, the, 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 the clinicians who sign our cases do make maybe sometimes minor modifications to the report of interpretation, but we basically generate a pre-report if you want. Uh, that is almost ready to be signed out, but can be modified, you know, if, uh, if pathologists want to, uh, to modify the reports. So we're trying to make it as easy as possible to sign our cases, but also really to put the results in a format that's easy to digest by clinicians. If, so you're making this available to the public. This is the uh, Precision Medicine Knowledge Base at Cornell. If, some, if a lab from the public or, or another organization were generating a lot of this data, would they have a way of submitting to this as well? Or is, it, is there a way that you can kind of trust what they've done and curate that? Yeah, so uh, we're trying to, you know, start the system where we would allow, um, you know, submissions from outside. I mean, you know, obviously it's a clinical database, so we have to vet the information very carefully. So we have a committee of pathologists, you know, here who essentially vet the information that goes into the database. Uh, so there's like an approval process, if you want, you know, it's, it, it's, you know, we want to make it easy for people to submit information, but also, you know, we want to make sure that only the, you know, very sort of well-vetted information goes into the final database. Uh, so we we are basically working on this kind of system where, you know, we would allow submissions from the outside, still enabling vetting, you know, uh, from a pathologist or from maybe, you know, other pathologists, you know. I think we, we feel that the information that goes into the database at the end of the day has to be vetted by both certified pathologists uh, just because, you know, they know, you know, what information, you know, should be there and they know how to, you know, sort of, you know, describe it, you know, they know how to, you know, what language to use in those interpretations. And we feel that they really should have a last word, if you want, in terms of what goes into the database. You mentioned just kind of in passing that you have a New York state regulatory burden. How is that similar or different from, say, a federal regulatory burden? Yeah, so it turns out, you know, the, the basically getting approval for genomic testing is, is very different, you know, between uh, states in the U.S. In New York, we actually have the highest level of sort of burden, if you want, in terms of getting approval for genomic testing. We have to provide a gigantic amount of information about, you know, the test, where it's performed, you know, who performs it, you know, training procedures, material, and so on. But also, you know, essentially we have to provide a lot of information about the test itself. You know, the limits of detection, you know, the, uh, the different types of tissues that the test, you know, can be, uh, you know, used on. We basically have to demonstrate that, you know, the test is reliable in all kinds of different conditions, whether it's, let's say, low purity tumors, tumors, you know, powerful embedded sort of tissue as an example. We have to demonstrate that we can do genomic testing and get reliable results in all of these different conditions. And so that would complicate, you know, very much, you know, obviously the, uh, the, the sort of, you know, the submission process, the certification process. But you know what? I mean, it's actually a good thing. It's actually good for patients that, you know, they get access to a test that's, you know, vetted, you know, at this level. We think it's, you know, even though it's a burden, it's actually extremely good for the patients. And so we are, you know, quite sort of happy about the process in some ways. I mean, the process is actually not, you know, really fundamentally too different from what it takes to get, you know, to try to get FDA approval. Uh, so it's actually, you know, it's a New York State, it's, you know, very difficult to get approval for genomic testing. We see it as an achievement that we've been able to get approval for example, for whole exome sequencing. We are actually the first institution to have gotten approval for whole, whole exome sequencing to more normal in the U.S. 
you've talked a lot about whole exome and, and the sort of genomic information. What other kinds of data, either omics or otherwise, so you've got, I guess, the clinical data as well, the EHRs, but what additional information are you collecting on these patients, or, or maybe does your lab think about working with in addition to these, uh, these data? Yeah, no, so that's a great point. You know, we really think of the future of genomic testing and analysis of tumors as, you know, obviously multi-omics, uh, you know. So, I mean, right now, I mean, for a variety of different reasons, I mean, it's, it's easier in some ways to do systematic analysis of the DNA. DNA is very stable. You know, we have some really good assays, you know, to interrogate the DNA. Uh, but really moving forward, we really feel like we need to have also, you know, some kind of functional, let's say, you know, readout of a genome. You know, we actually have, we're trying to do RNA-seq, basically transcriptomic analysis of tumors as often as possible. Uh, we started this using essentially only frozen tissue, which where it used to be, you know, sort of most practical to do RNA-seq. But in the past, you know, couple of years, we started optimizing RNA-seq from FFP tissue, which allows us to essentially now uh, almost systematically do RNA-seq in our patient samples, which is, I think, is going to be a game changer. We've actually published several papers really showing that RNA-seq in combination with DNA sequencing, you know, especially whole exome sequencing, gives you a much more compelling, much more sort of comprehensive readout of a genome and really sort of, you know, adds a lot of actionable, you know, targets, actionable mutations, you know, to the genome. For example, it gives you a sense whether a mutation is actually, you know, a driver mutation, not in many cases. I mean, if you see a mutation in a gene that's not expressed, you know, very often it's basically not an action, not a basically a driver mutation, just as a result of basically the gene not being there. If you see that, you know, the genes that are known to be downstream of a mutation are not expressed. It basically means that, you know, maybe the mutation is there, but it's not doing anything because the genes that are known to be downstream are just not doing anything, basically flat. So, you know, I think there's, uh, you know, we're, start, we're just starting to, to get into this. But in my view, I think there's a great future towards combining DNA sequencing with essentially a functional readout of the genome. And I think RNA-seq is, you know, one of those sort of assays that I think will be very useful and practical when it comes to getting that functional readout. It really sort of gives you additional it's a confidence about, you know, the fact that the mutation is really doing something that you expect it's doing. So that's, you know, RNA-seq is one of the things that we'd like to be able to do in all tumors. We don't have a clear assay yet, you know, for RNA-seq, but I think that's something we'll prioritize in the, in the next sort of few months or next few years uh, because it's really important. But we are still now doing RNA-seq, you know, as a research assay, if you want. Right. I mean, so that's also something we started doing now, you know, is we are obviously getting, trying to get patients to sign a consent to do research, you know, to enable us to do research on the clinical samples. It's all de-identified, you know, and so on. Um, but that, you know, allows us to essentially pilot things like RNA-seq in those cases. And we see, even though we can't report results, you know, from RNA-seq because it's not a clear assay, you know, to, to the physicians, right. but there's so much actionable information in RNA-seq. So is it fair to say that that's kind of an activity that your, your lab undertakes then rather than the center? Yeah, I mean, you know, and that goes back to the sort of, you know, dual mission of the Institute, if you want. You know, we have a clinical mission, but also a research mission. And so the research mission is broad. It's, you know, discovery of novel mutations, discovery of novel, novel potential drugs, you know, mechanisms and so on. But it's also, you know, trying to develop the next generation of clinical assays, trying to understand, you know, how we should be, you know, sort of doing things when it comes to genomic testing moving forward, you know, and it's very clear for all of these, you know, sort of experiments and all these, you know, sort of, you know, Initial sort of programs that you know we need more than the more than just the DNA, but that's that's very much you know again part of the mission of the institute. I mean, it, it definitely sort of meshes into what my lab does, you know, to some extent. Uh, but you know, this is uh, the joint mission of the institute for sure. 
tell me more. What else does your does your lab work on? I know you guys have an ex sort of an exhaustive list of tools and resources. Yeah. So just one more thing about the institute. I mean, so I mean, in much the same line of you know the the DNA is not giving you the full picture. RNA is you know potentially very helpful. We also have an organoid program. Uh, so that's organoid is basically you know more or less you know, cells, you know, fresh cells coming from the patient's tumor that we grow in a dish in 3D, in a 3D format uh, in such a way that we can get enough cells that we can, you know, make a collection of, you know, sort of tumors that all come from the same patients. Uh, the 3D culture is advantageous because it sort of maintains or sort of, you know, enables preservation of some of the features of the tumors from the patient. Uh, the tumors don't get to evolve as much if they are growing in 3D culture as if you grow them in 2D. Uh, but, you know, the goal of this, and again, sort of proof of concept that we've established now, you know, several times, is really to essentially create copies of a patient's tumor, but, you know, in vitro or sort of okay. ex vivo. That allows us to test multiple drugs and multiple drug combinations on the tumors from individual patients. Uh, and again, you know, this is a research you know, concept right now, but this is something that we also see as the future of precision medicine. Something that is going to be used in the future, maybe in five years, 10 years from now. And I think, you know, that it has you know, great potential. I mean, it's just realizing that, you know, we don't, you know, understand everything about, you know, the genome. It's just lots of mechanisms, lots of, you know, reason why, you know, cells, you know, respond to drugs, or, you know, tumors respond to drugs that we don't understand and having this ability to carry out you know almost you know mini clinical trials on individual patients with hundreds of drugs you know i think is is really sort of uh, you know very helpful in terms of illuminating you know what works and what doesn't work on, on patient samples and hopefully on patients down the line i yeah, mean we obviously we see this as a at some point also an opportunity to learn how to connect mutations and you know drug responses because as we see basically you know this patients respond to the same drug in the context of having the same mutation and we start we can also start you know connecting mutations mutations and drug responses. Yeah, we're running into a lot more data from, from spheroid experiments and actually companies that are working hard to kind of commercialize some of these models. Do you see these, these kinds of models as making their biggest impact close to the point of care? Or can you imagine entire sort of drug discovery workflows that use spheroids maybe rather than mice or Absolutely. I mean, a hundred percent, you know, I, you know, obviously, you know, mice have limitations when it comes to mimicking, you know, sort of, you know, responses of humans basically to treatments and so on. Uh, we really think that organoids more and more are going to provide essentially complementary platform for testing molecules uh, because essentially, you know, in what we see, I mean, they basically really mimic in very sort of effective way, you know, tumors from patients. I mean, the, what we do is, as I said, it's still mostly focus on metastatic patients and we actually getting a lot of organoids from metastatic patients and that's the same patient population that actually goes into clinical trials so you know i think you know organoids you know new spheres and so on have not necessarily always you know worked out in the past but we feel it's because essentially they were often derived from uh, you know primary tumors primary patients and not from metastatic patients where essentially the trials are conducted in you know sort of you know down the line mm -hmm. so you know what we, we are already seeing you know quite a you know bit of similarities between the way that organoids respond you know to treatment and patients respond to treatment. But again, focusing on, you know, tumors, disease that's metastatic and basically mimicking, you know, sort of, you know, where the clinical trials are happening. Uh, so we really think that, you know, there's great potential, as we discussed, both as a precision medicine tool, but also as a platform for drug discovery. Uh, because, you know, we've actually now uh, established organoids in about 12 different tumor types here in the Institute. Uh, and so that allows us to essentially test molecules, you know, across these 12 different tumor types. Uh, and basically, we can tell easily, you 
know, uh, where maybe, for example, to position a molecule by essentially trying it in different tumor types and seeing where potentially it's most effective in. Uh, so we have, you know, prostate cancer, breast cancer, colon cancer, lung cancer. We have all of the major tumor types, you know, 12 different tumor types in total. That's fantastic. That's really exciting. Um, and, uh, just one more thing that yeah, I want sure. to add briefly is that we're also working very hard to create immune-competent organoids. So that's mm -hmm. one of the limitations of organoids, you know, in, in some ways is that, you know, as you culture tumor cells, initially they have, you know, infiltrated immune cells, those cells die out, you know, because the, the medium that we use to culture cells is not, is not ideal, you know, for maintenance of non-tumor non cells. But now we're trying very hard to essentially, you know, get the, tum get the immune cells out of the tumors, expand them, you know, in variety of different ways, mm -hmm. and then basically re-inject or co-culture tumor mm -hmm. cells and immune cells from the same patients, uh, you know, in variety of different ways. And we're starting to get some really good results in doing so. And that likewise, I think is going to create, you know, models that are very, very faithful, essentially, in terms of recapitulating, you know, tumors that you see in patients. You know, this is, uh, this is really, you know, I think exciting, an exciting area of research in, in our group. Yeah, there was a, a paper uh, out in mid-December in Cell from uh, Calvin Kuo and, and colleagues yep. where, the, where they did a really nice proof of concept around organized modeling of the tumor microenvironment. Um, exactly. They're actually leveraging, you know, sort of that information in that the paper, mm -hmm. you know, to, um, for, for the research you know, happening here. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. No, it's been, I mean, just the amount of progress we've made is, is fantastic. I do think you're right in thinking there's a timeline here, though. You know, these, these technologies are going to take some time to become kind of routine and commoditized, but Man, how powerful. Absolutely, absolutely. So, all right, so your lab, you've got uh, sort of a dry lab component. You clearly have a wet lab component developing technologies. And you mentioned some external collaborations. So who do you reach to outside of the Cornell network to kind of help uh, motivate this work? Yeah, so we, we have uh, quite a few collaborations with, you know, companies, you know, pharma companies, for example. Uh, and, you know, and these, 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 uh, these interactions and these partnerships actually, you know, really, you know, to me, are very exciting and very informative. You know, obviously, not only they provide a source of funding, you know, for, for some of the research happening here, but I think most importantly, I think it's a mindset that we are, you know, essentially acquiring as a result of working with those companies, which is a, you know, a translational sort of commercial mindset, you know, is how to take discoveries happening here at Cornell and turn them into a commercial product. You know, how do we think about, you know, what the industry sort of needs and wants in terms of, you know, let's say new drugs, you know, how do we fill the gaps that exist? You know, I think all these interactions are very helpful in terms of understanding how industry thinks and works uh, and how we can, you know, sort of, you know, be as, as you know, useful as possible in the context of these uh, interactions. And again, again, how we can really, you know, translate as many of the discoveries happening here, you know, into commercial products, into new drugs. Because, you know, I think that's, you know, that's what we, you know, all aspire to is really, you know, to come up with better ways to treat patients, whether it's, you know, better diagnostics, better, you know, sort of mutational profiling, you know, technologies and so on, but also how, you know, better drugs, you know, better, better ways, you know, to, to keep cancer at bay. I want to pivot the conversation a little bit and talk more about data again. So one of the, the recurrent themes of, of our conversation on this, this series is around advanced analytics technologies. And, and often we just use an umbrella category of artificial intelligence, although as, as that terminology gets used and misused more and more, um, I'd love to give you the opportunity to maybe, let's come up with a working definition for what your lab, your research group, your institute, what kinds of analytics are you applying and innovating in towards precision medicine? Yeah, so I mean, I think that's a very important, you know, technology. I mean, we are, you know, trying to leverage it as much as we can. I mean, you know, I've been, uh, I have a, a background in computer science, you know, and I've been doing sort of machine learning actually 
for a long, long time. Actually, I got a, had a master's in, in you know, machine learning and, and AI. I got, you know, several years ago, you know, long before, you know, AI was cool. You know, it, there used to be a period of time where we would not even call AI AI. We actually, you know, we'd, uh, AI would, you know, have a bad reputation. We'd actually avoid using AI, you know, as a terminology. Uh, so I've actually lived, you know, for those years. And, you know, to we, be honest, we might I mean, get back there yet if we're not careful. We'll I know, exactly. I completely <laughs> agree. I think there's, uh, you know, we need to be very careful about all this. You know, the amount of hype, I think, in the industry, I think, is extremely high. Uh, so, you know, but the, the reality, though, is that, you know, with deep learning, especially, we're seeing really, you know, very compelling advances in, in technology in terms of, you know, using AI, building models that are very predictive, very reliable, very robust. You know, in my view, when it comes to deep learning, I think the killer applications are very much, you know, imaging related, you know, basically the ability to, you know, feed uh, complex images, you know, into these, you know, sort of neural networks and basically train from, you know, tens of thousands of images models that are very predictive. We've actually had, you know, uh, some of that, some of the research happening in our group, in our lab has been connected to this, you know, we've, uh, we're applying AI to images here in the medical college, you know, in a variety of different ways, whether it's, you know, histology, you know, slides, uh, you know, radiology sort of images, but also images that, you know, maybe a bit, you know, less sort of well used or less well known. For example, we have a, a, a fertility program here at Corner that's, you know, very, uh, very good. And, you know, in the context of a the program, they've been collecting images of you know, fertilized embryos after IVF. Uh, you know, so we have tens of thousands of such embryos with images and detailed clinical information. And we started applying deep learning to those images, you know, and we're getting really, you know, very compelling results when it comes to predicting the outcomes of fertility sort of, you know, treatments like IVF based on images of embryos after fertilization. Just an example of a project that's not nothing to do with cancer, but, you know, where we've been, you know, essentially able to use analytics and AI, I think, in a very effective way. And we have a, a paper that's, uh, that's in uh, resubmission about, you know, about all this. Uh, you know, in my view, I think, you know, our utilization of AI has been most compelling when it comes to uh, image, you know, and, and the nice thing, again, is that a medical system has tons of images, you know, generating as part of standard of care. So there's a lot of data that we can you know, use, use for these uh, analysis. Um, but we've, you know, the other sort of component where AI, in, in, you know, has been successful is in more actually in terms of drug discovery, in terms of, you know, developing drugs, discovering drugs. We've actually, a big component of my lab is actually focused on that, basically how we can use AI as a way to speed up, improve, enhance how we develop new drugs and how we essentially characterize, you know, new drugs. So we have a, we've had a couple of papers. One of them was, for example, using AI as a way to predict targets of molecules. For example, targets of molecules that come out of phenotypic screens. You don't have a target, but you can generate a bit of information about, you know, those molecules. For example, you know, treating, let's say, you know, cell lines with, you know, the molecule and then seeing what cell lines die, what cell lines don't, don't die. Transcriptomic analysis of, you know, cell lines. You treat a, a cell line with a drug or with a molecule. You see what genes go up and down. This information, even though it doesn't tell you the target, if you integrate it across, let's say, the structure of, you know, the, the molecule, the, 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 you know, the viability screens that you can do, transcriptomic analysis, all this information, if you can integrate it together using AI or using machine learning, really actually starts really sort of, you know, revealing the target to molecules in a very effective way. And so we've, uh, we've, we have a, a couple of papers about this, you know, really 
pretty sort of you know nice way to use AI. And it's again, it's more machine learning and AI. It's not deep learning. It's basically you know Bayesian you know networks. You know, and I, but but very effective. Really, sort of you know helps us narrow down to the you know the, the, to the target of a molecule in a very effective way. And in my view, I think this kind of technology is going to be used more and more as you know as we sort of start to understand their power, their strengths, their weaknesses. I think they can really help when it comes to specific aspects of how we discover new drugs or develop new drugs, basically filling gaps, you know, that we have now. For example, in terms of target identification, uh, we are also using AI. I think there's a killer application of AI in my view, which is to learn how to combine molecules and drugs. You know, as we are getting more and more, you know, inhibitors and more and more drugs, you know, I think it's a major problem in my view to really understand how to combine them. You know, there's just so many combinations, you know, I think we, you know, there's no way that, you know, I keep saying there's no way that we can pipe it fast enough that we can test every possible combination. So we're going to have to be smart about it. But in my view, I think, you know, if we, we and we've actually shown, you know, proof of concept of this, maybe we can test, you know, a small number of combinations and then extrapolate, you know, based on AI and, you know, to the other combinations that we haven't tried experimentally. Uh, and maybe, you know, this you know, would allow us to, you know, basically sort of navigate, explore the space of possible combinations mm-hmm. in an effective way. And again, I think this is uh, one of the applications of AI that I think has a lot of potential. So, you know, my lab also works on this component. It's like, you know, how to tackle difficult problems, you know, in drug discovery uh, using AI. And we're starting to get to see some nice success. Uh, and But obviously, there's a lot more to do. Yeah, no, we're really interested in this problem of combinatorials as well. And, and it occurs to me that there's the one challenge of just the overall combinatorial space. You know, there have been right. literally tens and tens of thousands of compounds that have gone into humans over the years. And, and you know, that's a huge combinatorial space to just test in the lab. But right. more importantly, we don't have a lab system that recapitulates the human biology correctly. Right. And so, you know, you increase the odds of toxicity and off-target right. problems. And so thinking about using data integration in a smart way to kind of come up with a more, let's say, comprehensive guess at what's going to happen in vivo is, is probably important. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. And again, cool. I mean, just to, you know, to, you know, to add a little bit to this, you know, we've actually, we have a lot of data, you know, we've actually, we had another project to predict toxicity of compounds based on clinical trials results. You know, we actually, you know, people have done so many clinical trials, you know, we know which ones, you know, have gone all the way to FDA approval, which, you know, failed early because of toxicities and so on. We've actually shown that we can actually learn from, you know, these trials, combining, you know, features of, let's say, the molecules, the targets of the molecules, we can actually predict, you know, pretty effectively, you know, which molecules had the potential to be toxic. Mm-hmm. You know, again, I think this is, you know, basically leveraging the fact that we've done so much, the field has acquired a lot of data, and we think that we need to learn from that data and so that we don't repeat the same mistakes. No, that makes sense. So you, you've talked now about, um, obviously, clinical data and patient records. We have genomics data, RNA sequencing, spheroid type information. What kinds of data do you think we're, we're most lacking? We have got a lot of imaging data. Where would you like to see either the research or maybe even the clinical community focus their efforts on data acquisition? Yeah, I mean, you know, I think there's, uh, there's several things, right? One one is that, you know, we still live in the world of silos. And so we still live in a world where, you know, it's hard to combine information from multiple, you know, centers, hospitals. You know, I think that we need to move beyond that point, you know. I mean, because I'd, as much as, you know, in a large hospital like this one, like the one that we are in, you know, we have access to a lot of patient samples. It's just basically not enough, you know. It's basically, you know, we need to combine essentially data across multiple hospitals, multiple institutions 
operations, multiple, you know, centers across, you know, the, the entire planet, essentially, so that we can get to the sample size that we can, you know, so where we can essentially make, you know, essentially robust associations. We're not anywhere close to having that possibility. So honestly, I mean, to me, that's one of the main, you know, sort of one of the first things that we all need to work on is how to find ways essentially to combine those data sets into, you know, larger data sets so that we can increase sample size and, and increase power. I certainly do think that, you know, we are in the situation where we've pioneered a lot of things in cancer. Uh, we can now essentially take all the things that we've done in cancer and try to apply them to, you know, other diseases. We have programs here at Cornell focusing on Alzheimer's disease, cardiovascular medicine, diabetes, where I think there's great potential to essentially use, you know, both genomic information, but also the same concept of organoids, right? Basic ex vivo models. Often it's going to be IPS derived, you know, basically you get, you know, let's say skin cells, you make IPS, and then you can, you know, sort of uh, differentiate those IPS cells into all kinds of different tissues. You can make a mini heart, you can make a mini brain based on IPS cells. And I think there's a potential then to try, you know, essentially the same model that we use, you know, for organoids in cancer, you know, in organoids, you know, we're trying to kill cells. Obviously, in those other diseases, we don't want to kill cells. We want to change specific phenotypes. Uh, but again, I think the same concept, I think, is very much applicable, I think, to those other diseases. And I see great potential in the future for precision medicine to essentially be applied to these other diseases. Uh, and but still, you know, basically leveraging the same concept, you know, genomics, and then, you know, some kind of a, you know, ex vivo model type of, you know, sort of uh, program. Let me ask you a little bit about the uh, the company that I, I'm only familiar of, the one, One3 Biotech, that's spun out of your lab. Tell us a bit more about the company, who's running it, what's its mission, and are there other companies that have come out of your lab that I'm not aware of? Yeah, so, um, you know, it's part of, you know, again, trying to kind of sort of go to the next phase, you know, commercialize, you know, concepts coming out of the lab. I think it's really important. You know, on the West Coast, it's something that's pretty natural. People come up with companies, start companies over time. On the East Coast, I think we're just getting started. You know, there's, a, there's not been the same kind of culture of starting companies that you have, that you see in the West Coast. Uh, but it's, it's, it's getting there. It's getting better and better. So the, one of the companies that we started was uh, a company called One Free Biotech. Uh, One Free is interesting. It's a little short story. It's, uh, you know, the, our institute is in basically in, in Manhattan. And so we are located in 1305 York Avenue. Uh, we are actually located in the 13th floor of that building. And my office is, is, is basically our office 1313. So we've actually been exposed to like 13, you know, sort of, you know, basically since the beginning. It's worked out reasonably well for us. So basically as a, as a, you know, as a sort of testament to all this, we've basically named a company, uh, One Free Biotech. Basically it's a company that's, you know, looking to commercialize, looking to uh, use AI as a way to uh, enable, you know, drug discovery. I mean, not a new concept in some ways, but it's leveraging essentially research happening in my lab. Basically, the research that I mentioned to you uh, when it comes to you know, predicting targets of molecules, when it comes to combining you know, drugs in a smart way. We have predictive models that we think you know, are very helpful when it comes to you know, doing all these tasks that are very difficult you know, experimentally. And so we're trying to now basically build a kind of a drug discovery program based on, this, on these technologies. Honestly, our goal, you know, in, in, you know, it's not moving as fast as I would like it to move, you know, but basically would, I would really like to sort of think about disrupting the whole industry. Basically, thinking about how we can use AI at the beginning of a drug development process or drug discovery process and not, you know, at the end. I think there's a lot of utilization of AI that's kind of retrospective in some ways. You do, you know, you basically have a, you know, molecule, you have a target, you have a molecule, you basically go through clinical trials and then you have samples and then use AI as a way to maybe understand, you know, what the molecule is doing in clinical samples. But I feel like we can potentially rethink the whole industry from the start. Think about how we can use AI as a way to discover new targets. Think about how we can use 
use AI as a way to maybe, you know, create, you know, new molecules. Think about how we can use AI as a way to maybe connect these molecules with, you know, specific targets. Think about how we, we can use AI to predict the toxicity of molecules, you know, in basic trials before we actually give the molecules, you know, to humans. I think we can, you know, we can sort of think about rethinking the whole industry in some ways. I know it's very ambitious. It's probably not something that's going to happen anytime soon, but I'd love at least, you know, to go through the effort, you know, to go through the motions of trying to rethink the whole, you know, process essentially and see, and see, see if it works, see what works, see what doesn't work. You and I are like-minded about this and there, there are quite a number of us also who are excited about the potential to, to make differences at various points in the, the life cycle of developing a new therapy. All right, one last sort of area of interest I, I just had to ask you. A while back, your lab developed actually a program for Oculus Rift. So this is AR, VR. This is cool. This is sort of a total departure from the other stuff we've been talking about. Tell us about that. What healthcare problems were you trying to address? Is this something you're still working on? Uh, it's a cool you know, program. We, I have a, basically one fellow who's working on this. I mean, it's a small program. Uh, again, I mean, it's one of those things I'd like it to be a bit more active, but you know, you have to pick your battles in life and we can't do everything. But, you know, so it was an attempt at, you know, essentially trying to address the, you know, the topic of, you know, information, let's say overload. I mean, you know, the reality is a bit like, as I was mentioning earlier, you know, is that for every patient that we care for in this hospital, we generate a tremendous amount of information, whether it's imaging information, genomic information, we have, you know, also access to the entire history of patients, you know, so from the moment that they check into the hospital and so on. And, you know, to be honest, I mean, you know, I don't think there's a good way or I don't think we are, we have a good way to visualize that information, you know, and we've been maybe also trying to think about how to maybe redesign how we consume medical information in some ways. And, you know, I really think that there's a potential for AR and VR to actually be helpful in terms of consuming medical information. Uh, you know, it's information that's very complex. A lot of it is not relevant at a particular time point, you know, in the care of a patient. But, you know, again, you know, I think ideally you would want a physician to have access to this information and be able to browse it, you know, in multiple ways, in a very natural way, which is not essentially, you know, the way that typical sort of electronic medical record, you know, fails right now. Basically being able to essentially kind of use it like a medical cockpit, if you want, where you have access to the entire set of information about a patient and browse it. A bit like Minority Report, you know, the movie about with Tom Cruise, you know, looking at different pictures and so on. Basically manipulating this information with his hands. And you would like to be able to do the same thing with medical information. Uh, and I really think that there is a role to play for VR and AR in this. Uh, we basically established a little proof of concept, you know, on this. We've put a lot of medical data in those, uh, you know, sort of uh, virtual and, and augmented reality sort of, you know, systems. Radiology data, but also, you know, genomic data, you know, network data showing you know, sort of connections between, you know, mutations that you see in the patients and potential drugs that you can use for the patient. And we're just testing different things. We're trying to see what works and what doesn't. It's, it's early stage, uh, and, you know, and the systems are getting better and better. I'm, I'm, I'm always, you know, still blown away by, you know, the HoloLens, which is one of the main systems that we use now. It's basically augmented reality and see virtual objects, you know, that uh, sort of uh, almost interact with the real world. It's very cool stuff. And it's early days, you know. I think that, you know, next five years, 10 years, we'll see much better, you know, sort of systems, you know, very like almost like glasses that you just put on and that you see all these virtual objects. And we'll have 
have, I think, to reinvent how we interact with you know data in this way. I mean, we have at least we have the possibility to reinvent you know how we interact with data. I keep saying you know the way that we consume data now is basically mostly you know two-dimensional, which is basically on a screen, which is essentially not you know a strong deviation from the book more or less. And I keep saying the book is probably not a strong deviation from like a, a wall, like in a cave. You know, I think that we can also rethink how we you know manipulate you know consume you know data. Uh, and I think those systems, you know, the HoloLens and you know the Oculus and so on are going to be great opportunities for rethinking how we consume medical data, hoping to play a role in this and then, you know, but we'll see how that goes. That's absolutely fascinating to me. Um, I, I wish you luck with, with that as well. Thank you. Uh, Olivia, this was, was a ton of fun. I could keep you all afternoon, but I know that, that we're all uh, busy people, so I'll let you go. Thank you for spending some time with us. To our listeners out there, this is Olivier Elemento, who's really one of the real practitioners in the space. Um, I'd love to stop by next time in New York and see what you guys are working on. We'd love to have you, and, and thank you so much you know, for, for doing this. It's, you know, it's been a lot of fun. So. Great. Thanks very much. This has been episode seven of Talking Precision Medicine. Please share it with your colleagues, leave a comment or review, and stay tuned for the next one. Thanks for joining the conversation.